Bankoman, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Juan Derrien, a carnival mass. But first, how are we doing? I know in previous weeks I have burned through this opening segment, so this week I want us to really check in with each other. Thank you again for listening each and every week. I really appreciate it, and I hope that you are doing well. Uh, Happy Easter! We're recording this the day before Easter, so I'm hoping that uh, if you uh, celebrate it in some way, I like to celebrate by eating jelly beans and basically just jelly beans. I'm not even really a chocolate bunny kind of guy. Uh, Patty, I know you love a chocolate bunny. Love a chocolate bunny. That's why I got you a chocolate bunny. Look under your chair. She found it. <laughs> yes, it's it was hiding under your chair this entire time. Ooh, I'm a sneaky little beast. <laughs> I, I am, I am. Uh, yeah, so happy Easter to everyone except the two guys who run the tennis podcast. Now, I brought this up last week. Last week, we were going up against a recording session for a tennis tennis podcast. We didn't really have any information on the show beyond that, but we did have a very brief, I would describe it as curt interaction uh, with the two men who host that show. Not going to give the name of it, not going to give them any promotion because they were very clipped with us. Uh, We were trying to be very friendly. We were trying to, you know, be sort of neighborly. You know, we operate out of the same studio. So it's, it's good to kind of foster that community, that sort of genial atmosphere. But these guys were not having it. We introduced ourselves. We gave our names. They did not. They, But they did ask us what our show was about because apparently, like us, they were curious to know more about our show. And I gave them, you know, a very... I, I understood that they were going in uh, to record and I just gave them a very brief logline regarding the musical man. And the way that these two looked at me, it was as if I was a shit-covered alien from another planet they would never want to visit, they cut that conversation off real quick. So definitely got a homophobic stink from the two guys who host the tennis podcast. What? I can't even remember what it is. It's something along the lines of like love 40 or like love for it's a play on love for the tennis term love. If you really need to find it, you can find it via a Google search, I believe. So yeah, happy Easter to everyone but the two guys who run whatever the hell that tennis podcast is called. Fuck off. On a completely different note, I have been debating on whether or not I should finally bite the bullet and buy a season subscription to the Broadway in Chicago touring productions that are going to be coming through Chicago, of course, in 2019 and 2020. I have the brochure right in front of me. The expense is the problem. So here's the deal with Broadway in Chicago. If you really want good seats and you're going to buy a full subscription pass, that's going to run you over $500. I think it's going to run you over $550, actually. And I've never been able to go through with it, pull the trigger on this because sometimes, you know, the shows that are coming through uh, all together, it it, it maybe doesn't come off like a great package, but this year the package seems pretty strong. So it starts with the play Oslo. They always include one play, just one play, and then then it sort of gives way to musicals. So of course there's that Britney Spears show we've talked about, Once Upon a One More Time, then it continues with Mean Girls, Once on this Island, Summer, the Donna Summer musical, and it concludes with Frozen. So I am interested, but there's a a poll that's been running on Twitter. Apparently a lot of people think I should follow through and just make this happen. And I don't know. I get so anxious when it comes to uh, spending money
money in general. And over $500, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, Patty and I are in agreement on that. Completely different note. Patty, I met your partner today. She is amazing. I, I had never met her before. We had been doing this show together for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm so glad that I was able to meet her today. When I, outside of the studio, I was arriving. You were being dropped off. And she absolutely delightful. I couldn't be happier for you, Patty. Patty and I are in agreement that it seems like it maybe is a risky idea. You never know when you're going to need $500. It's not like I'm sitting here with $500 to just spend. You know what I mean? It would be great for the podcast. I, Zach reached out to me and he said, uh, you know, it would be great fodder for the podcast. I agree. But I just don't know. And on a final note, uh, the week that this comes out, this episode, it will be the week that the official Tony nominations uh, for the 2019 ceremony are, are announced. And I'm very interested to see what will eventually be nominated for Best Musical. Those nominations are being announced, I believe, on the 30th. Here are my predictions. I'm just going to give you my predictions. This is the last Last little fun nugget we'll have before diving into Juan Darien. Here's what we're working with. So we have Be More Chill, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, Beetlejuice, Hades Town, Tootsie, The Share Show, King Kong, Pretty Woman the Musical, The Prom, and Head Over Heels. I'm going to make four predictions. You know, the total number of shows that get nominated, that can vary from year to year. Uh, but I'm going to make four predictions. I predict that Be More Chill, Beetlejuice, Hades Town, and The Prom will be nominated for Best Musical. I'm going to lay that out there, and I want to see how right I am. I want to, I've been doing this, you know, again, for a few weeks, more than a few weeks now, and I want to know how uh, well-refined my my gut is when it comes to the Tonys, the Tony Awards. I want to know how right I am. Now, I, I almost went with Ain't Too Proud, the Temptations show, over Beetlejuice, but for some reason, the bile and the bacteria and the chemicals in my gut were telling me to go with Beetlejuice. So we're going to see how right I am on April 30th. I, oh, oh, I hope I'm right. Can you imagine if I got all of them wrong? Can you imagine if the nominees were Tootsie, King Kong, Pretty Woman, and <laughs> The Share Show, let's say? I'm sure The Share Show is a lot of fun. I just don't see it getting nominated. Uh, but yeah, that's our opening segment. Oh, we really got to just stretch out, didn't we, Patty, in this? Oh, that's, that's a fact. We should do this more often. So, uh, again, this week's subject is Juan Darien, a carnival mass. Uh, let's get some show facts regarding that production. Juan Darien is a musical created by Elliot Goldenthal and Julie Taymor. It is based on an original folktale by Uruguayan writer Horacio Quiroga, whose work throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s is said to have partly inspired the Latin American magic realism movement, as well as postmodern surrealism. Taking a look at Quiroga's selected bibliography on Wikipedia, I assume that Goldenthal and Taylor must have pulled from his 1918 story collection, Quientos de la Selva, which translates to jungle tales. Goldenthal and Taymor were interested in filtering Quiroga's folktale through several lenses, including, of course, carnivals, but also theatrical minimalism, mask work, jazz, Japanese bunokru, and shadow puppetry, and requiem masses that are traditionally sung in Latin and Spanish. The religious aspects of the piece led some to describe it as a passion play, though Taylor and Goldenthal stuck by their preferred descriptor, Carnival Mass. Juan Darien originally premiered off-Broadway in 1988 at the former St. Clement's Church before being retooled for Broadway. It opened on Broadway on November 24, 1996 at the Vivian Beaumont Theater and ran for only 49 performances, so a very, very short run. Per Wikipedia, though, the show did have a long touring life after it closed on Broadway. It would eventually go on to become a 1997 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. The book was written by Julie Taymor and Elliot Goldenthal. Goldenthal is also credited as having chosen and arranged Latin text for the piece. Uh, the music and lyrics are by Elliot Goldenthal. The director of the production was Julie Taymor. The musical director was Richard Cordova. The choreographer, none cited, actually. There, there isn't even a musical staging by, which we've seen in the past. Set designed by G.W. Mercier and Julie Taymor. Lighting designed by Donald Holder. Costume designed by G.W. Mercier and Julie Taymor. Mask and puppet designed by Julie Taymor. And the original Broadway cast included Ariel Ashwell, Christopher Batho, Tom Flynn, Andrea Frierson-Tony, Daniel Hod, Vanessa A. Jones, Andrea Kane, Stephen Kaplan, 
and Irma Estelle Laguerre. Tony nominations. Okay, so it received five nominations in total, but it did not wind up taking any awards home at the end of the day. So those nominations are Best Musical, of course, Best Original Musical Score, which uh, not that nomination went to Elliot Goldenthal, Best Scenic Design for G.W. Mercier and Julie Taymor, Best Lighting Design, Donald Holder, and Best Direction of a Musical, Julie Taymor. Let's get some additional info regarding Julie Taymor, shall we? So you would most likely know Julie Taymor as the director of Disney's The Lion King on Broadway, which premiered in 1997 and is still running to this day. The liner notes for Juan Darian make it clear that she is actually in the process of directing The Lion King at the time of the album's release, which I thought was a really great timestamp. I, I loved that. Taylor also directed the infamously troubled Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark for Broadway, and her film credits include Frida, Titus, and Across the Universe. Most theatergoers know Tamor for her work with masks and puppetry, as her designs can be found in almost every project she has overseen. These designs were heavily inspired by Tamor's mentors from the American Society for Eastern Arts, who are masters of Indonesian Topeng masked dance drama and Wayang Kulit shadow puppetry. I can't get enough of Tamor's masks and puppets, personally. They always strike me as incredibly haunting and more than a little bit dangerous. Whenever I see a Tamor puppet, I assume it's going to pull me into a pocket dimension of somber ballads and low-key frights, and it gets me excited every time. Even when her designs appear in something as mainstream as the Spider-Man musical, they stand out as wild and mesmerizing, so I was eager to see Juan Darian in action. Unfortunately, as I came to discover, there is no video footage from this or subsequent mountings of Darian. Not even a clip from the Tony Awards, which leads me to assume they simply did not perform at that year's ceremony. Very disappointing, to say the least. Now, when it comes to laying out the plot of Juan Darian, this week we're doing something a little different. We're going to be doing something a little different. I'm going to read the official plot synopsis, which is provided in the liner notes of the 1996 concert album. And throughout my recitation, I'll drop in clips from that album. Afterwards, I'll provide my thoughts on the score. Sound good? Great. P.S. number one, I was able to buy the album thanks to your monthly Patreon donations, and I continue to be forever grateful for those regular contributions. Thank you. P.S. number two, the plot synopsis I'm about to read describes a trio of shadow puppet scenes known as Tiger Tales, which serve to break up the action of the story and provide grisly comedic relief. I wanted to make sure you were aware of this convention before we dove in. And now, it's time to dive in. Darkness. A church floats in a black void. It starts to disintegrate, the walls falling away to reveal an interior filled with jungle leaves. We hear a distant chorus of Agnus Dei. As the small church disappears, giant jungle leaves are revealed floating in space. Two dragonflies, copulating, fly through the air. Other animals appear. Monkeys, lizards, birds, jaguars, and a snake. All are copulating. Suddenly, the lizard's tongue sucks up the dragonflies. The snake squeezes the life out of the lizard. Giant claws clutch the snake. The jaguar devours a bird. Gunshots are heard. A hunter appears in the leaves. Another gunshot. The jaguar, hit, leaps into the air and slowly descends to the ground. A baby jaguar appears, looking for its mother. A funeral band marches through a small village led by a priest who swings frankincense. Three giant black birds hover overhead and, as the band comes to a halt, a chorus of women sings with them. of the plague appear one at a time, a man with a lifeless child in his arms, a giant weeping face and hands, a woman with three mourning faces, 
two women carrying a dead man, a small grieving woman with outstretched arms. A vulture flies through the space. Night falls. A light is seen in the window of a small house. It is the mother's house. Her shadow is seen in the window. Villagers bring candles for the plague victims. The village rotates, revealing the inside of the mother's house. Mr. Bones, a skeleton with a half-human, half-jaguar face, enters and does a wild and quick dance, and the candles are blown out. The mother sits on her bed and stares out her door. She sees a baby jaguar approach in the distance. He comes to her doorstep. She is frightened. He is hungry. She hesitantly picks him up and carries him inside. Sitting on her bed, she nurses the cub. Hunter approaches, following the scent and footprints of the jaguar. He bangs violently on the mother's door. Frightened, she hides the cub under her shawl. As the hunter bangs on the door, Mr. Bones dances to the Mr. Bones two-step, followed by a shadow screen, oil lamp, and puppets. Tiger Tale number one. The banging of the hunter is synchronized to the shadow puppet image of a cobbler hammering a pair of boots. A giant jaguar sneaks up behind the cobbler and swallows him whole, boots and all. Satisfied, he burps out one boot and defecates the other. The two boots kick the rear end of the jaguar and chase him off the screen. The hunter bursts through the door and searches the mother's house. He rips open the mother's shawl, but in her arms, instead of the jaguar cub, she cradles a crying human baby. The hunter stomps angrily out of the house. Hundreds of white butterflies surround the mother and child, dancing in celebration of the miracle. the baby. Eight pairs of hands in a line appear in a stream of light. The hands baptize him, wash him, and give him a name, Juan Darien. The mother wraps Juan in her shawl and goes to sleep with him in the bed. Nocturnal rituals are seen through the village windows. Mother and baby Juan, men drinking in a bar, a couple making love, a mother combing her daughter's hair, a man and woman fighting. A giant jaguar leaps over the village. The lights go out one by one. A drunken couple dance out from behind the village. Baby Juan walks alone toward the audience. Mr. Bones silently tiptoes toward him, followed by the shadow screen. Bones puts his finger to his lips. Hush. The baby watches the shadow play. Tiger tale number two. A jaguar tries to quiet a bawling baby. As soon as the baby calms down, the jaguar pops it into his mouth. While the jaguar picks his teeth, the baby starts crying like a siren inside his belly. The cries grow louder and louder, driving the jaguar mad. Mr. Bones hands him a gun. Shaking, the jaguar opens his huge mouth and aims the gun inside. Bang! The jaguar's head is blown off and the baby crawls out. 
He picks up the jaguar's head and plays with it like a big rubber ball. Morning. A 12-year-old Juan wakes up to the sound of bells and the sight of children popping their heads into his window. The children are marching through the streets on their way to school. Juan and the mother join them, holding hands. In the thrill and elation of his first walk to school, Juan seems to glide through the air. The mother points out the world to him as the little children disappear into the schoolhouse at the top of the village. recedes as they approach the schoolhouse. Juan and the mother stand in front for a moment until the grip of their hands loosen and Juan enters the school. Inside the schoolhouse, the children are at their desks and the teacher, a tall, stern, bespectacled man, moves around them. is raised to the national anthem. The children alternate between following the lessons and raising hell. Juan sings his addition tables. Juan stares at a globe of the world. As he touches it, it begins to spin and glow. From inside the globe, a flower starts to grow. Juan becomes excited and climbs to the top of his desk. The teacher, furious, orders Juan to sit down. Using his bony finger, the teacher stops the globe from turning. The light dies out. The globe and table are carried away, leaving a dead flower on the floor. Juan's mind takes on the form of a duplicate of Juan's head and floats in space. Furious, the teacher opens the head, and long, wild grass pops out of the top. A giant pair of scissors cuts the grass. The head closes and disappears. Meanwhile, Juan has picked up the wilted flower. From the book on top of his own head, the teacher rips out pages, which read stamen, stem, leaf, and petals. He puts these labels on a set of drawers which float in front of him, and orders Juan to place each of the flower's parts in its appropriate drawer. As Juan complies, the pleased teacher resumes his lessons. Juan's attention drifts, focusing on a moth fluttering in the window. The moth's face bears a ghostly likeness to the mother. Juan follows the moth back to his house as the schoolhouse retreats into the distance. When he gets home, he finds his mother lying in bed. Juan kneels at his mother's side and sings his addition tables in a desperate attempt to keep her alive. The mother dies, leaving Juan with only the memory of her loving countenance. Juan climbs to the graveyard at the top of the village. As he digs into the earth and renders her memory to the clay, two butterflies flutter around his head as if to comfort him. A 
A deformed greenish dwarf appears, beckoning to Juan to come down from the hill. It dances and mugs until it finds just the right trick to bring a smile to Juan's face. Just as they notice carnival sounds approaching from the distance, they are surrounded by long circus banners. The banners are painted with hundreds of faces laughing, screaming, eating, kissing, wild jaguars in cages, horses, dogs, snakes, circus barkers, and tightrope walkers. They swirl in and out of formation, led by Senor Toledo, the tiger tamer, on his unicycle. Juan finds himself swept away into the dizzying carnival. The banners finally open wide and come to a standstill. The circus barker introduces Senor Toledo, who enters the ring commanding attention for the start of his great tiger taming act. As Toledo opens the cage, the tigers fly out. Before the awestruck crowd and a frightened Juan, he performs his dangerous and vicious act. It becomes apparent that the dwarf is Toledo's sidekick and slave. After the Tiger Act finale, the space is cleared for a sideshow, Pin the Wings of the Moth. A wall is rolled out, and on the front of it is the green dwarf. Toledo takes each of its arms and raises them upwards, revealing wings with luminous white spots and circles. Toledo throws daggers at the spots as the wings tremble. Juan doesn't know or understand that it is only a game. He runs to the rescue of his new friend. The crowd jeers as he tries madly to pull the daggers out of the wings. Suddenly, Juan is surprised to hold only the shell of the moth, a flimsy costume with fabric wings. He looks questioningly to the crowd, which simply laughs. Off in a quarter, Toledo is counting his money. As Juan turns back to the wall, it has opened like a Venetian blind. Juan peers through the openings to see a naked girl washing green paint off of her body. Hesitantly, he approaches her. As if expecting him, she turns to face Juan and hands him the sponge. He takes it and gently starts to wash the green off her back. Toledo watches the scene through the blinds and suddenly pulls the string. The entire contraption collapses. Toledo covers the girl's naked body with his cape, picks up the screen and costume pieces, and walks off with the girl, both of them laughing at the naive Juan. The carnival day has come to an end. Mother's voices are heard, calling their children home. No one calls for Juan. He crawls inside the jaguar's cage and falls asleep nestled among their bodies. The street singer appears, sweeping away the rubbish as he sings lullaby. second verse, Mr. Bones enters dancing with an old woman. Charmed by the debonair Mr. Bones, she shrugs off unsettling premonitions and continues to dance, but at the end of the song, she falls dead into his arms. The shadow screen appears at the end of the dance. Tiger Tale number three. A flamenco dancer appears on the screen. She is approached from behind by a dapper gentleman in a fancy suit. His tail caresses her backside. Ooing and eyeing, she turns to face her seducer. He suddenly rips off his clothes, revealing jaguar spots. Completely aroused, the woman removes her dress, exposing a hairy chest and a pistol between her slash his legs that shoots the jaguar dead. It is morning. The school children come to the fairgrounds and find Juan asleep in the jaguar's cage. Thrilled with his bravery, the children celebrate the still-sleeping Juan until Toledo enters. Enraged and humiliated, Toledo pulls Juan out of the cage and drags him off to school. Toledo confides to the teacher his suspicion that something is strange or demonic about Juan. Perhaps he is a jaguar hiding in human skin. 
The teacher has an idea. He takes out his big pocket watch and swings it to put Juan into a trance. He then asks Juan to sing about the jungle. Juan stands on his desk and begins to sing of the jungle from a baby jaguar's point of view. During the trance song, the jungle leaves lower, creating a sea of leaves that surrounds Toledo, the teacher, and the schoolhouse, and children. Juan seems as if he is floating on top of the leaves, while the baby jaguar appears and walks through the leaves below. As Juan sings whiskers, the jungle sounds thunder, and the leaves fly into the sky. Toledo and the people of the village accuse Juan of being a jaguar. Diaz Ire begins. As Toledo grabs him, the villagers appear bearing the circus banners. Like a whirlwind, they encircle Juan and Toledo. The circle opens and Juan is in the center, firmly held by two villagers. Juan's shirt is torn off his back and he is placed atop a whipping block. As Toledo whips him, Juan reaches his hands out to a mother in the crowd, and his plea is answered by the chorus screaming for his torture. Juan is tied to the top of a large wooden scaffold. The crowd deserts him, and Juan prays for deliverance. At the end of his prayer, the crowd marches in slowly, carrying torches. As the barker shouts out the confutatus, the crowd sets fire to the scaffold, which explodes into blazing fireworks. Tiger Tale Number 4 Mr. Bones appears with a giant shadow screen which rises in front of the raging blaze. The silhouette of Juan's head and hands can be seen slowly changing into a tiger's head and paws. When the transformation is complete, the torches are put out. Juan is cut down from the structure, and the screen is lowered and removed. Lacrimosa 2 is sung a cappella while Juan is cradled in the arms of the three-faced woman. She carries the seemingly dead jaguar to the edge of the jungle. in the middle of the jungle, barely moving. One by one, the jaguars approach, surrounding him. They lick his wounds, and he begins to gather strength. Toledo's music is heard in the distance. The jaguars freeze, then quickly retreat behind the leaves. From the distance, Toledo approaches on a unicycle. As the jaguars are about to leap on Toledo, the mother moth appears before Juan. A battle between revenge and forgiveness ensues as the jaguars approach and then retreat from Toledo. Finally, Juan gives them the signal, and all of the jaguars pounce upon Toledo, tearing him apart. the carnage and approaches his mother's grave. As Juan kneels and prays at his mother's grave, a gunshot is heard coming from the jungle. With his paw, Juan takes blood from an unhealed wound and writes, and Juan Darian on the cross under her name. He rises and retreats into the jungle as a triumphantly dancing jaguar. Epilogue. Through the leaves by the mother's grave, Mr. Bones appears. A dragonfly oscillates above his head. The jungle is enveloped by a mounting tapestry of sounds as Mr. Bones' long, pointing finger slowly, slowly rises to meet the dragonfly. When he touches the insect, all movement and sound stop. 
So that was my recitation of the liner notes, plot synopsis. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed all of the lovely music you heard during it. It was like a storybook, wasn't it? And apparently there are four Tiger Tales. I believe I said that there were three before my recitation began. But now that my recitation is over, I realize that I made a mistake. So there you go. Let's talk about the score. Let's talk about the songs. So I'm not a musician, and it's difficult for me to speak to the construction and complexity of this score, though overall it hit me as quite rich and evocative and self-assured, making it clear from the outset, as I said, that this isn't the kind of musical Broadway was used to seeing in 1996, or for that matter, 2019. I wouldn't call Juan Darien a play with music, as so many other productions go by, since that implies traditional scenes are being interrupted by the occasional song. Darien feels more like a performance piece or or art exhibit come to life, one that brings its own fully realized soundtrack to the table. The instrumentals are seemingly ever-present from the word go, and the Spanish-Latin lyrics prioritize atmosphere over the forwarding of a nuts-and-bolts linear narrative. True moments like Juan's trance-induced description of life as a jaguar act as story beats, but if you don't speak Spanish, you have to glean a meaning from how the lyrics are sung the way they are delivered, since a trans translation will not be provided. I like that a lot as it requires you to lean forward, stay sharp, and interpret what you're hearing. Uh, Much of the score is dedicated to the showcase of religious chant, and I was reminded of how relaxing I find that style to be, having been raised Catholic. I may be an atheist now, but I can still be put at ease by ghostly Latin invocations. My being raised Catholic would also explain my adoration of Enya and New Age music in general, as that also puts me in a sort of a gothic church mindset. My being raised Catholic would explain a lot of things about my adult life, but this podcast is not about my being raised Catholic, or is it? No, it's not. One last super general thought. The vocals on this album are uniformly gorgeous. I want to talk about the first track on the album, Prologue, Agnus Dei. By the way, this is going to be made available via Dropbox, as it cannot be accessed via iTunes or Spotify, so check our Twitter, Musical Man Pod, for that Dropbox link. I would recommend listening to this score in full. It's it's really great. So, in regards to the track Prologue, Agnus Dei, I feel one of the goals of Juan Darien was to compare the godliness of human constructs, like the Christian church, with what people of the church would consider a mythological and uh, thus unholy. Organized human society versus the jungle, strictures and commandments versus the chaotic principles of Mother Nature. This prologue draws us into the show via gothic chants, which evoke stone and stained glass and frankincense, but as the liner notes state, the jungle bursts forth to make its presence known and force this semi-hostile coexistence. The jungle knows of transmutation and resurrection, as the Christian church does, but the jungle's concepts of transmutation and resurrection, they don't play by the rules of our neatly curated religions. Mercy in the jungle is hand out unpredictably and in very small doses. So when Juan's jaguar form is adopted by a human woman, it is both a miracle and a disaster in the making. Nothing gold can stay seems to be the age-old aphorism that the show is pushing. Man and beast are not made to be neighbors, at least not for long periods of time, and when they do come to love each other, that love will inevitably be misunderstood, mischaracterized, and vilified. Thematically, it's all quite fascinating, and I really enjoyed this first track. I also really, really liked Jaguar Cub Approach, and this is, of course, when Juan's Jaguar form first appears before the mother. I really, really dig how the instrumentation on this track tries to crystallize the quivering, almost alien rumble of a Jaguar Cub's growl. I didn't even pick up on what they were trying to convey at first, as it totally snuck up on me. This piece of the orchestration sounds wounded and scared and dangerous all at the same time, and I can see why someone would both want to protect and be wary of this little cub. I got a bit of a chill while listening to this track. I cannot tell a lie. Mr. Bones' two-step was a highlight for me, and you know why? 
uh, this is something I enjoy. Instrumentation that straight up makes me think of rattling bones, baby, bones. And this track is serving that up in spades. I love bones. It calls so much to mind. I mean, Halloween, of course, but also the skeletons of Fantasia and old silly symphony shorts. My instinct when listening to a great deal of this score was to lean into and back away from its various soundscapes. And Mr. Bones' two-step is a great example of that push and pull. I'm all about Mr. Bones, to be honest. Dude is a clickety-clacking reaper of souls, but he is fashionable. He's fashion-forward. He is sporting a bowler hat, and one half of his bear skull is actually a fully realized jaguar face. Mr. Bones, you are serving Lukes, and you are a fashion play. Thank you very much for serving up those Lukes. Please invade my nightmares, Mr. Bones. I welcome you. During the track Gloria, the butterflies that surround Juan and his uh, newly adoptive mother are represented solely by a piano at the beginning of the track, which is a refreshing change of pace from the score's otherwise busy agenda. There is a delicate freneticism here at the start of this track, and I quickly found myself uh, completely caught up in it. Bounding percussion and Vangelist-style electronica are slowly added to the mix as the track continues, and while I've given a side-eye to keyboards in the past, here I enjoyed the inclusion of the digital. This show is meant to be a patchwork pastiche, so why not? At least here the keyboard is front-forward. Nobody is ashamed of the inclusion of the keyboard. It's not tucked away to supplement an otherwise stingy, dingy orchestra. Looking at you, swinging on a star. Factor in the return of the Latin chants and their pairing with triumphant horns, and you have what I feel is one of the best tracks on the entire album. A lot of really cool choices are being made in the school track. You have the simultaneously childlike and sinister sounds of xylophones and wind-up jack-in-the-boxes, as well as the harsher, flintier strings, which represent Juan's disapproving school teacher. The school teacher and the children each seem to have their own theme on this track. Everyone's getting their own theme, and you know I appreciate an old-fashioned Peter and the Wolf approach in conveying character through music. We also get a really strange cat-like harpsichord in the mix, which brought to mind the N64 Zelda titles, brought them right to the front of my mind, specifically made Jorah's Mask, and I think aesthetically, there actually is, this is a weird comparison to make, I admit, but Majora's Mask in this show, visually and musically, I think there's a lot of overlay there, actually. During earlier moments on this concert album, I found that the musicality of humanity in Goldenthal's score read more European than South American to me, and this is only reinforced with the arrival of the Carnival. The accordion brings a seaside shanty vibe to the proceedings, a World War II French drunkenness that is both jaunty and a little out of control and a little dangerous. When I listen to this track, I picture the Carnival existing at the hair's edge of civilization, which is where the Carnival always should be, right? Right on the edge of just falling into the abyss. When you're at the Carnival, you should be able to see the lights of your hometown, but there should also be a risk that you'll never get back. That's what's so spooky fun about the Carnival. The Carnival is the perfect metaphor for experience tainting innocence, and that's what we see in the events of the Wanderian plot. No one leaves a Carnival unchanged. It inevitably leaves an imprint on you. See uh, the Fantastics, Pinocchio's Pleasure Island, and the Carnival-esque performance troupe from Pippin, which became a literal Carnival troupe in the 2013 revival of Pippin. All I'm saying is, if you want to lure me to the boardwalk by the light of a dingy gas lamp and absorb me into your Carnival cult collective, feel free to try. I may or may not object to your attempts. You never know. There are many sequences from Juan Darien I wish I could see in full, and the carnival is easily at the top. That is my deconstruction of the Juan Darien score, and now we are going to get a word from our fine sponsor, 5678 Orange Grove. Take it away, 5678.
Oh, hi, it's me, the helicopter from Miss Saigon. Foot, 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 foot. Oh, you know, I've just been hanging out backstage for a while, waiting for my big cue, my big debut. And I was just thinking to myself, where am I going to go after tonight's performance? You know, they let me fly anywhere, darling. Yes, it's true. Well, foot, 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 I'm feeling a little thirsty. A thirst that cannot be quenched by any normal coffee. I do need to pick me up. What's going to give me a pick-me-up, send me flying into the outer reaches of the Earth's atmosphere? What's going to give me a kick and a boost in my little fan blades? Foot, 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 foot. And then I realized, oh, five, six, seven, eight, Orange Grove, which normally would be seen as a breakfast coffee. People would say to me, human beings who I chop up into little meat chunks with my blades just for fun, they would tell me, you know, helicopter from Miss Saigon, you cannot have, you cannot have breakfast coffee for nighttime. No. That's what I would say to them, no? But then I chop them up into little meat chunks, and I laugh at them, and I say, you can have orange, grow five, six, seven, eight, whatever you want, darling. It's true. It's totally true. So why don't we all get inside me? That's right. I'm not going to chop you up into little meat chunks, little tofu cubes. I'm not going to, I promise, I promise. Get inside my bowels, and I'll take us to the nearest location that serves up a hot, steaming mug of five, six, seven, eight, orange, Grove. Breakfast coffee? Sure. 24-hour coffee choice. Even better. Oh, I like it. I very much like it. Oh, five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. Final thoughts on Juan Derrien, A Carnival Mass. Now, I'm going to expand on how Tamor and Goldenthal drew inspiration from Latin America in a moment, but on a broad note, I definitely did enjoy my time with Juan Derrien, even if my experience with it was limited to the album. Without the visuals, it's like I'm holding my ear up to a door I can't open. So, take my analysis with the gigantic grain of salt I like to trot out from time to time. Ah, it's so big, the salt! But can we please get a revival of this work in some form. I'd love to see what people think about it in the year of our Lord 2019, especially in how it mashes performance and musical styles from different cultures together. More on that in a second, as I said. Now, in 1997, Titanic took home the Best Musical Prize. Uh, The other nominees that year were Steel Pier and The Life. Now, to compare Juan Darien to three decidedly more traditional quote-unquote, Broadway musicals seems a bit foolhardy. Darian is a puppet and mask spectacular, utilizing music and lyrics in a way Titanic, Steel Pier, and the Live simply do not. Their goals and priorities simply aren't the same, so it doesn't make sense to have voters pretend otherwise. Do I think Titanic should have won? I'm going to give a soft yes, though I'm not what anyone would call a Titanic stan. When it comes to ranking the show, I'm going to place Juan Darian, a carnival mask, at the number six seven slot right between Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 and South Pacific. Once again, if you want to see the overall rating of the shows that we have discussed on the podcast, you can go to Musical Man Pod on Twitter. There is a pinned tweet that will take you to a Google sheet, and the second tab will provide that complete ranking to you. Now, show-related ephemera. I was able to find something this week, which is always good. I'm, I always get a little bummed out when I can't really find anything of particular interest to me. But this week, I found a clip of Julie Taymor that I've pulled from this program called City Universal Television Presents the American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater Producing. What a title that just rolls off your tongue like marbles. Oh, it's, it just it's such an easy thing to say off the top of your head. City Universal Television Presents the American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater producing so many colons, so many colons. Now, this is a panel discussion that is featured in this program. Uh, The panel is dedicated to discussing the development of The Lion King, and Julie Taymor is there, you know, representing the directorial perspective of that piece. So when we go into the clip I pulled, just understand that Taymor is in the middle of discussing how Elton John collaborated with another songwriter to create new material for The Lion King. So without further ado, I want to play you this interview uh, segment with Julie Taymor. When we talk about collaboration, it's that's not by committee. That is a joining of two talents to create a third, unique, singular sound and singular world. 
and that hopefully through my ability as a director and theirs as the producers say it's not a hodgepodge that we feel that we have completely blended this to make, to make its own east west africa america collaboration because even as a designer and working with designers i don't want it to look like i'm just smorgasbording here's a little bit of africa here's a little bit of asia here's a little bit it is filtered through us as artists and comes out to be something unique um, authenticity doesn't necessarily only mean that it's Africa transplanted. Authenticity means that it's true to whoever and whatever has created it. That it feels authentic doesn't only mean that it is pure from its origin, but it's pure from the origin of the artist. And you, you sense that and you feel it. And I know that I directed my designers, my co-designers, to work that way. That we weren't just making a copy of you know, there are African fabrics that are reconsidered, reconfigured in the design. Those aren't pure, yet you feel it. You feel the source there. In this clip, Julie Taymor makes it clear that when she was developing The Lion King, she didn't want to present a hodgepodge or smorgasbord of cultural ideas that had simply been lifted, copied, and thrown on stage like laundry into a basket. She was instead aiming for a fusion of these disparate elements. The product of which would be inspired by but ultimately stand apart from all of its influences. I feel comfortable assuming this was her goal when creating Juan Darien. I think it's easier to get away with this what can we pull or discard from different cultures rhetoric when you're presenting what are essentially folk or fairy tales like The Lion King, like Juan Darien, rather than historical events like, say, The Fall of Saigon. But I think in 2019, Tamor's comments from this clip would be seen as a questionable defense of what is undoubtedly a form of cultural appropriation. It may be measured and thoroughly researched appropriation, but it's appropriation nonetheless, and her attitude is edging into condescension here. I, I, I feel like in summary she's essentially saying, you as an African may not think what I'm doing with your culture is authentic, but it's authentic to me, and that's more important, and that kind of makes me cock my head to one side and say, Hugh boy, as always, please let me know if you have any thoughts on this or any other subject we have addressed today. I would love to share said thoughts on the podcast. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show. No, I'm pretty sure that's my chair, Fidel Castro. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Okay, we have stepped off of the musical carousel, and I am taking in my surroundings. I'm trying to determine where we are exactly, and we have landed on Big Deal. That is a nominee from 1986. Big Deal is our next subject, so get ready for that. Thank you again for listening, as always. If you would like to become a regular Patreon donor, you can do so at patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. If you give a dollar a month, you're going to get a regular weekly verbal shout-out, just like these fine folk, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you give $3 a month, you're going to get a musical shout-out, a one-time musical shout-out in the style of a character or composer you choose. If you donate $5 a month, not only do you get the one-time opportunity to determine which show I discuss on the podcast, but you also get access to episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. And finally, if you donate $10 a month each and every month, you're going to get access to monthly bonus episodes and a series known as The Snub Club, which is dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Donations go toward cast recordings like Juan Darien, movie rentals, offsetting Podbean costs. And if we ever get to the point where we are raking in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing a new series known as The Movie Musical Man, which will be dedicated to movie musicals we wouldn't normally encounter. If you're listening through iTunes, please go into the iTunes store, leave a five-star review, and write out 
write out those thoughts. Tell me what you like about the show. You have no idea how much it helps me each and every day to read those reviews. It, it, may, it fills me with so much happiness. You can stream the show via Podbean. That's musicalmanpod.podbean.com. And we are also available on Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thank you very much, as always, to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and to Zach Little for his wonderful, fantastic underscore music. And that's the doorbell. I knew it was coming. Thank you so much for not scaring me this week, doorbell. Oh, you know what that sound means, though. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>